He who has silver is happy. He who has grain feels comfortable. He who has livestock can sleep. It's good to have stuff. Yep, <laughs> it's good to have stuff. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here with my guests. Kira. Howdy, I'm Sheila. And today we are listening to Sumerian Proverbs. These were mostly written down between 2100 and 1600 BCE. The translations are coming from the ETCSL, as usual. So we'll start with some generic good advice. While you still have light, grind the flower. When the sun is setting outside, so that you cannot even recognize the hand in front of you, go indoors. <laughs> that is good advice. <laughs> The uh, little-known corollary, when the sun stops shining, stop making hay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like when it's dark outside, don't be in a place where you can't see shit. To eat modestly doesn't kill a man, but to covet will murder you. To eat a little is to live splendidly. When you walk around, keep your feet on the ground. Oh, I really like that. Keep your feet on the ground. Something offered is not offered. Something finished is not finished. Nothing changes. Can't say hmm. I get that one. I mean, it, it may be just like, nobody ever lives up to their promises or whatever. Oh. But I, I don't know. Like, neither a borrower nor lender be kind of a situation. Like, if you're being given something, it's, you know, it's not really given freely. Mm, that makes sense. Um, so right. Finish is not finished. Well, I suppose a lot of things need maintenance, right? Right. Hmm. I don't know. I do like this one, though. I will feed you, even though you are an outcast. I will give you drink, even though you are an outcast. You are still my son, even if your god has turned against you. Oh. Right. Is this like family over religion? Like, I don't know. I, I get the sense that the son has done something that's pissed off the rest of the town. Mm-hmm. That, you know, no one else will help him, but his parents will help him. Oh. Because of family. Well, that's nice. I, yeah. I kind of got the impression that, like, he did something that was religiously looked down on. And, like, maybe the town turned against him, but, like... Like, maybe he has, like, leprosy or something, and people are like, hmm. oh, it's a curse from God. Maybe. When it says your God has turned against you, that just means, like, you're experiencing misfortune. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Right. Uh, this one's really fun. I love it so much. <laughs> right. <clears throat> to serve beer with unwashed hands, to spit without trampling upon it, to sneeze without covering it with dust... To kiss with the tongue at midday without providing shade are abominations to Utu. I, I, know, I don't know why at first I thought those were things that, like, you should do. Like, you should spit and you shouldn't trample on it. That would be the polite thing to do, but it is not. Yeah, you don't want to leave your loogies hanging around on the street for everyone to look at. True, you gotta, like, you know, squish that into the dirt and mix it up into a little <laughs> bit of mud. An unoffensive yep. bit of mud. Okay. Yes. Sneezing without covering it with dust. That one's weird. I figure it's kind of the same situation. Like, you don't want to leave your saliva droplets just around. You can't see them. It's a good point, but I don't know. Wouldn't the dust make you sneeze more? Uh, maybe. Well, Utu is the sun god, and sunlight makes you sneeze, so... There you yeah. go. Yeah. Kissing with the tongue at midday without providing shade. Is that just, like, get a room? Pretty much, I think. Yeah, okay. All right. Otherwise... All right. The god of sun can see you, Mac, and, and it's, that's rude. That's just rude. Yep. So we have a couple sayings about shepherds. And generally, the Sumerians being sedentary agricultural people tended to look down on mobile herding people. For example, a shepherd, his penis. A gardener, his hair. An unjust heir who does not support a wife or who does not support a child has no cause for celebration. What? Are they saying that shepherds have little dicks? 
I think the implication is like a gardener who does not like trim his hair, you know, a guy who doesn't support a wife or a child has no cause for deliberation. It's like, you know, you have one job. If you're a gardener, it's to keep things neat. If you're a shepherd, it's, I guess, to, you know, not impregnate. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, like, wait, 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 wait. What? <laughs> I'm not seeing this at all. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, maybe like an animal husbandry. But maybe. the penis of the uh, animal husbandry is not part of the process. This one doesn't make sense to me. I will admit it. I will admit my big brain cannot wrap around it. Unjust heir who does not support a wife. Okay, you're, you're set up to inherit some family stuff, and, like, is it your wife that you're not supporting? Is it, like, second wife of your parent that you're not supporting? Or does not to support a child? No, I think it's supporting his wife or his child. Okay. Or maybe he should be married, but he isn't. Okay. This is not, like, great peanut gallery commentary. I just can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, the hecklers are all just kind of confused. <laughs> Generally non plus, like we don't get it. Got a tough crowd. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Your cultural references are five thousand years out of date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. I will go today, is what the herdsman says. I will go tomorrow, is what the shepherd boy says. I will go is I will go, and the time passes. Big talk, no walk. Yeah. Well, I'll get to it eventually. Interesting. Wait, so what what does that mean? Well, I feel like it's like, you know, the herdsman says, I'll go do it right now. The shepherd boy says, oh, I'll get to it eventually. But at least the shepherd boy never actually gets around to the task. Hmm. I read it as the herdsman says, I'll do it today. The shepherd boy says, I'll do it later. But no matter what, the task is done after it's done. Hmm. So That also makes sense. Like, I mean, whether or not the herdsman does it today, the task gets done in time. Same with the shepherd boy. So what I'm saying is this is a pro-procrastination proverb. <laughs> that is fair. I don't know. I think most of these proverbs are anti-procrastination. Hmm. Well, I choose to interpret this as pro-procrastination. Let me have this one thing as a procrastinator. Anti-procrastination. <laughs> I'm glad that's universal. It's been around forever. Like, the threat of, of like, actual survival doesn't really lessen the like like ability to procrastinate like our <laughs> inclination yep. to just like leave things until the last minute even if they're really important like even if doing it's probably going to kill you like uh, I... later <laughs> well i guess i'll find out when i die wheat and hold barley was made to taste like honey the nobad ate it and did not recognize what was in it nice nothing's more than the sum of its parts or is this commentary on nomads being like dummies? I think it might be uh, these dumb hicks don't even have honey or don't even have the culinary skills necessary to replicate the taste of honey. Oh. So, eh. Okay. That's less cool than something being greater than the sum of its parts in like transformative magic of cooking. I mean, that could be it. Who knows? Like ratatouille style. <laughs> if you get rid of the shepherd, then his sheep will not return. Likewise. Because the clever shepherd became confused, his sheep did not return. People like people need leaders. People need competent leaders. Because like there's a saying like you know if you cut off the head of the snake, then the snake will die. Which like you know if you get rid of the leader, then the movement will stop existing. But I mean more literally, if you had a field and shepherds kept grazing their sheep on your land, uh, you might want to figure out a way to get those sheep away from your land. So who knows? A shepherd boy, when weary, cannot recognize his own mother. What? Yeah. When you're tired, you're bad at brain stuff, and I assume they already look down on the shepherds, so who knows? Don't drive tired. So we have a couple miscellaneous proverbs. Again, you know, advising wealthy young men to be stingy with the urban poor, for example. 
A vagrant flays the skin of an open hand. Ooh, like they'll bite yep. the hand that feeds them? Pretty much. Mm. Unpleasant plants grow toward a good field. You're just calling them weeds. Yeah. Rude. We also have two sayings referencing Elam, the mountainous region east of Susa, you know, east of Sumer. He who has to live in Elam, his life is not good. And he who entered Elam, his lips are sealed. Vegas. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, you, I mean, I'm just commenting on like your little bullet point that says what happens in Elam stays in Elam. <laughs> Sounds like people in Elam are living the good old life of sin. <laughs> we have some more proverbs about just general society. For example, Where there is no grain, this is a sign of vengeance turned toward a city. Where there are no reeds, it is the worst of all poverty. What's the difference of reeds that they're so, like, you... Life is bad. Is it like they're near rivers and like water sources? Is it like yeah? So Sumer is basically one big wetland. Marshes are really easy to irrigate because that water is already all there. So it's easy to plant in land that used to be a marsh. And also reeds are what they would use to make baskets and they would burn it for fuel. So essentially, you know, reeds are one of the only natural products that grow in Sumer that aren't crops or animals mm. because they don't have lumber from trees. You know, there's a lot of natural resources they don't have. They need reeds. You should hold a kid in your right arm and a bribe in your left arm. Is the kid a goat? I think so, yeah. So I think the implication is, you know, you should bring your legitimate temple offering to the god and a bribe just in case. Just in case. What is placed in the fire has a valuable role to play, but leaves nothing behind when it's gone. That's dark! Right? <laughs> That's, that just makes me think of, like, soldiers. True. Ah, it's dark. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you can see it. <laughs> There's definitely an ideology behind all this. To stand and to sit, to spur on the donkeys, to support the prince. Who has the breath for that? Standing, sitting beneath me. Yeah, exactly. I prefer to plank. <laughs> That's what I have mm. breath for. If the foreman does not know how to assign the work, his workers will not stop shaking their heads. I mean, like, okay, you don't know how to do your job, so you don't get any respect. Yeah. What characterizes the carpenter is the chisel. What characterizes the reed weaver is the basket. What characterizes the smith is the making of little trinkets. What characterizes the singer are the sounds uwa and alala. Your products or your tools of your trade are, are like what define you. And I, that's pretty true now. Like we pretty much just define ourselves by our jobs. Yeah. And I like the indication that even 4,000 years ago, you know, they, when they thought of a singer, they thought of someone saying la la la. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You should serve me is typical of purification priests. Bowing over your hips is typical of leather workers. To be stationed in all corners is typical of lucur women. I will be there with you is typical of gardeners. I swear by Enki that your garments will take no time in this establishment is typical of fullers. Okay, so everyone's full of promises, I guess. I think it's just like setting up like, I don't know, stereotypes. What are lucre women? I'm just imagining it's prostitution. It's a type of priestess. A type of priestess is stationed in all corners. We'll hear more Sumerian proverbs, but first. So this episode is about the Eastern Fertile Crescent. We're going to focus on Iran during the Pottery Neolithic, but we'll start with two sites in central Mesopotamia. Those are Tel Es Sawan and Trogamami. Among other things, they seem to have invented irrigation in this region. From there, not only irrigation technology, but also aspects of culture spread eastward up the Diyala Valley and along overland trade routes. This would influence several aspects of Iranian culture. Then we'll talk about the first wine and the first intensive cattle herding in the region. Then we're going to finish up by looking at Chogamish, not to be confused with Chogamami. This was an extremely important site in southwestern Iran 
and the most important site in Susiana for about 2,000 years, starting at the beginning of the Pottery Neolithic, and we'll finish by taking a very quick look at Trogabonat, which we met back in episode 5. So, Tel Es Sawan is in north-central Iraq, 11 kilometers south of Samara, which was the type site of Samara pottery. Like the site of Samara, Tel Es Sawan has a cemetery on a cliff overlooking the Tigris River. So the earliest occupation dates to the 6000s BCE. At this point, the Fertile Crescent stretched farther south, that is, it rained in up here for dry agriculture. During the earliest level, we have over 400 graves. 77% are infants, 13% are children, and only 10% are adults. And they're buried under unusually large buildings with no domestic materials. So these might be public buildings. We might even be able to call them temples. Notable that at later sites, like Tel Abada, we will see infant burials under the floor of a public building. In terms of grave goods, we see very little pottery, most of which belongs to the Proto-Hasuna culture. We see 1,341 alabaster objects, mostly vessels. Many graves had two to three alabaster bowls. One of them had ten. But we also see 243 alabaster statuettes, which are unique to this cemetery. 36% of burials had no bones, just grave goods. These might be ceremonial deposits, so people might have been buried elsewhere. One grave includes just a child's hand, and in other graves we see piles of several people's bones jumbled together. In 2012, Joan Oates wrote that, quote, The differences within these graves suggest that some degree of social ranking may already be present, end quote. Also, during this early occupation here, we see seal impressions in lime plaster, or juss. So you would tie a bag with string, wrap wet juss around the string, and press the stamp seal into the juss. So again, you would have no way to open the bag without disturbing the seal. This occupation dates from the same time as the earliest settlement of southern Mesopotamia, both here and at early sites like Tel El Uweli. We see very similar styles of Samara pottery. So Tel Es Sawan may be where the earliest inhabitants of the Mesopotamian alluvium originated, or somewhere in this region. We'll see a later occupation here. During the Samara period, a while later, at this point the village is two hectares or less, and domestic cattle are new in this region. This later settlement is surrounded by a wall and a ditch, Early on, this was interpreted as a fortified site and maybe an important political center. But as we've talked about, both walls and ditches have water management uses. In this case, it wouldn't have been very much protection against humans, so it was more likely to keep sheep in and stray dogs out. The dimensions of the ditch vary, like we would expect if flood water came from a specific direction. It's also possible that the ditch was just a mud that they dug out of the ground to build up the wall. You know, if you're going to make a ditch, it's better to have it outside the wall than inside. We see some T-shaped buildings, or tripartite buildings. Keep that phrase in mind for future episodes. These are probably granaries because of a row of bread ovens along the inner side of the wall. These buildings are similar to later buildings at Tel El Uweli in the south. During the Samara period, which again is one of these pottery Neolithic material cultures, we see some burials under the houses, mostly with Samaran pottery, not alabaster vessels anymore. Three pottery kilns in a courtyard made this Samara pottery, which is probably evidence of institutional pottery production that is specialized artisans making pottery for a group larger than a single household. Likewise, large regular houses here were probably made by a skilled mason. We're not only looking at sun-dried mud bricks anymore. So again, we might see an increasing specialization of labor. But last, and definitely not least, like I mentioned, Tel Es Sawan has among the earliest evidence for irrigation. We see grains of six-road barley, flax, and peas, with seeds bigger than it would be possible with dry agriculture. It's worth noting that flax requires a lot of water to grow. So even when it rained more here, it probably didn't rain enough for flax. In other words, production of linen textiles would be dependent on irrigation. And of course, both irrigating farmland and weaving flax into linen are both extremely labor-intensive. So people would have dug canals from the Tigris to their fields. This is arguably the most important innovation to come out of the pottery Neolithic, besides pottery and maybe plows. All three enabled the massively productive agriculture that helped incubate the first cities. Later on, we'll see famous Sumerian city-states in the south, which are all reliant on large-scale irrigation. Likewise, let's look at Chogamami, 
We are in far eastern Iraq on the modern Iranian border. This is also the border between the plains and the Zagros foothills. So Chogomami is on the road through the foothills, which will later become the Persian Royal Road. It was occupied during the 5000s BCE, so at the same time as the later occupation at Tel Es Sawan. So again, it's part of the same material culture linking much of northern Mesopotamia and Iran. Also, like at Tel Es Sawan, we see clear similarities to the Ubaid Zero culture, especially at Tel El Ueli. At this point, the south is covered by marshy wetlands, mostly unfit for agriculture as is, but they'll soon be perfect for irrigation once people figure that out. Like at Tel Es Sawan, we see a distinctive T-shaped style of building called a tripartite building. These are either storage buildings or a home for an extended household. Like in southwestern Iran, these are built with cigar-shaped bricks, which we'll talk about. There's a guard tower on the northeastern limits of the site, which has been interpreted as a sign of violent conflict, the idea being that you need a lookout to spot enemies approaching from far away. There's also evidence of a migration from this area of central Mesopotamia into southwestern Iran. So Joan Oates quotes a 1977 article by Frank Hole, which he says, quote, The intrusion of the Chogomami transitional into Khuzestan, or southwestern Iran, was probably an actual movement of people, judging from the ceramics, the domestic cattle and dogs, the hybrid races of grains, irrigation, and the particular form of impressed bricks in the composition of floors, all of which are marked departures from previous tradition in Dehran, end quote. Most relevant to later history, here we see among the oldest evidence for irrigation canals, the same large grains as at Tel Sawan, and a series of channels dug in the same direction as later canals, later canals from both the Ubaid and the modern period. So whereas the canals at Tel Sawan were dug from the Tigris, here they dug them at an angle through the watercourses of the Zagros foothills. So I mentioned earlier that quote-unquote Chogamami transitional material culture. This is a name for the Samar culture that gets introduced into Iran around this time from places like Tel Sawan and Chogamami. It's the subject of a lot of academic disagreement. What's important is the clear evidence that this region influenced Iranian material culture farther east. This is likely to have accompanied at least some amount of eastward migration into Iran, maybe in search of natural resources from the Iranian highlands, like timber, bitumen, maybe copper, and maybe semi-precious stones. Along with this influence and possible migration, this is also when irrigation and large-scale cattle herding appeared in western Iran. Speaking of which, like elsewhere in the Near East, western Iran had hunted wild cattle since forever, but there were never a major component of animal assemblages before about 6000 BCE, probably because of how dangerous they are to hunt. So I mentioned that cattle were apparently domesticated in the northern Fertile Crescent around 8500 BCE, that is in what is now northern Syria and southeastern Turkey. From there, cattle spread rapidly across the Near East, including to Cyprus by about 8200 BCE. These early domestic cattle were physically indistinguishable from wild cattle. By the early 7000s BCE, we'll see these cattle start to get smaller, probably as a result of selective breeding for smaller, less aggressive bulls. In the eastern Fertile Crescent, that is in western Iran and northeastern Iraq, before about 6000 BCE, cattle only make up about 3% of animal bones, compared to an average of about 15% for sites in the northern Fertile Crescent. But there's a dramatic increase in the later Pottery Neolithic. At sites like Chogamish, among others in southwestern Iran, cattle increase to 10 to 20% of animal bones. This is likely when domestic cattle are imported into the Iranian herding lifestyle. It's worth asking why it took so long for cattle herding to spread into this region. It's not far from the area of initial domestication, and the two regions had been in constant contact since before the Neolithic. So there are some reasons for this. Among the most salient is that this area has more rugged and mountainous terrain, and goats and sheep are much better at navigating hills and ravines than cattle are. Obviously, this is where goats and sheep live and where they're first domesticated. Also, before domestication, northern Iraq relied more on gazelles than cattle as wild hunted game. And also, in regions that previously relied on hunted wild cattle, the aurochs, or the wild bull, is extremely symbolically important. It represents strength and virility. Maybe this would create a bigger ideological incentive in these regions in order to domesticate them. Aside from the benefits that cattle share with other livestock, like meat, milk, and leather, cattle are also big and strong enough to pull plows, which we talked about last time, 
Like with milk and wool, this would be an incentive to keep animals alive for a long time, and more intensive herding, in this case, would also lead to more intensive agriculture. As I mentioned, it's not certain that they were using plows at this point, but they may have been. Moving on to wine. So wild grapes are native to sunny, temperate forests, and they're found across most of Western Eurasia. Most early finds of grape seeds are in the Jordan Valley, or the Upper Tigris, that is either in the southwestern or the northeastern parts of the Fertile Crescent. Grapes become more common by the 7000s BCE, including in Cyprus. It's unclear if they were introduced to the island or native, and they may have been part of an early crop package that arrived with the first PPNB colonists. Around 6000 BCE, we see the first genetic evidence of artificial selection, including larger grapes, more grapes per bunch, a wider range of colors, especially more white grapes, flowers with both male and female reproductive organs, and most importantly, a higher fructose content. So fructose is the sugar in grape juice, and as we'll see, it'll ferment into alcohol. The more fructose you have in the plant, the more potent wine you can brew. I mentioned last time that this fermentation is achieved by a fungus called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or brewer's yeast, or baker's yeast, or ale yeast. As I mentioned, this is the ancestor of bread yeasts, but beer yeast has a separate genealogy, although it is the same species. So the history of bread making is intertwined with the history of wine making. So in the country of Georgia, around the early 5000s BCE, we see pottery sherds with traces of tartaric acid. So ceramics are naturally porous, which means they preserve certain chemical compounds even after the contents of the clay vessels have rotted away. Tartaric acid is present in both grapes and wine. It helps preserve wine by making it too acidic for the bacteria that cause spoilage. So during the fermentation process of wine, the tartaric acid crystallizes into potassium bitartrate, also called cream of tartar or beeswing. This is a byproduct, usually filtered out of wines before they're bottled. They only found tartaric acid in the pottery, not cream of tartar, which is only proof that they had grape juice here, not wine per se. But this may be because the archaeologists found these sherds in the 1960s, and they used diluted hydrochloric acid to wipe off the calcium carbonate and other natural buildups, which would have also wiped off the bitartrate crystals formed during fermentation. So if there was evidence of winemaking on this pottery, the archaeologists would have wiped it off without knowing. Again, my source here for that chemistry is my friend Sheila. These containers are all you need to make wine, so you need access to grapes, you need yeast to convert that fructose into alcohol, and that yeast occurs naturally. So like I said last time, if you leave a container of fruit juice out and expose it to the air outside, there is ambient wild yeast floating around out there, and it's likely that that bowl of fruit juice will begin to ferment into wine. So moving to Haji Farouz Tepe in northwestern Iran, between about 5400 and 5000 BCE, so the very end of the pottery Neolithic, and overlapping with the Ubayid period in southern Mesopotamia, we see six jars containing tartaric acid, as well as some kind of tree resin, which is new here. We didn't see the tree resin in Georgia. Pine and terebinth resin were commonly used in ancient Mediterranean wines and in some modern Greek wines called retsina. So this resin acts as an antioxidant and it prevents the wine from turning into vinegar. It can also be used to mask a strong smell or a strong taste. We found six jars at this Iranian site, totaling 55 liters or about 15 gallons, which would be enough to get an entire Neolithic town hammered. By the 4000s BCE, we see grape pips and pollen outside their natural range in Iran, which is possible evidence of widespread domestication. This is also when we see certain evidence of wine production in Armenia. So as far as we can tell, winemaking is centered around the Caucasus region. So like I said, let's look at Chogamish, not to be confused with Chogamami from earlier. Chogamish is a site in Susiana, which is a river plain in southwestern Iran, just east of the southern Mesopotamian alluvium that we'll spend several episodes on coming soon. And because of this proximity, Chogamish is tied to the early history of Mesopotamian urbanism. So today, we'll cover the period between about 6800 and 4700 BCE. So from the beginning of the Pottery Neolithic, past the end of the PN, all the way to the early Chalcolithic. So Susiana is watered by several rivers. The Karun River flows mostly west. 
The Dez flows south and joins the Karun near modern Shushtar. Shushtar is Farsi for more beautiful than Susa. And the Karche River flows south near Susa, and it used to join the Tigris. Chogamish specifically is between the Dez and the Karun River. Just one kilometer to the east is the Shur River, a tributary of the Dez, not to be confused with the Shaur near Susa. You have no idea how long it took me to figure that out. So in general, this section is a history of both Susiana and Chogamish. So in each period, we'll look at Susiana first and then Chogamish specifically second. And of course, we're in the Pottery Neolithic. So this is when we see the earliest pottery in southwestern Iran, around the same time as the Near East in the 6000s BCE. This early pottery is fairly crude. It's handmade. No one will invent the pottery wheel for another couple thousand years. So these pots have thick walls made with plant matter mixed in with the clay. They're also fired at low temperatures, usually under 700 degrees Celsius. So these pots are not very durable as they would be if they were fired at higher temperatures. A little bit farther to the southeast in modern Fars province, we see clay formed around baskets, which of course are a much older technology used to carry around goods. Then they would apply pure clay to the outside to be painted. So these pots are almost certainly produced domestically. That is not in a pottery workshop. Even so though, it is a time and labor intensive process. So starting at the beginning of Chogamish's history, around 6800 BCE, the climate of Susiana is warm and wet. The whole area is a flat alluvial plain, well watered by these several rivers, resulting in a kind of marshy wetland habitat, similar to what we see in the Mesopotamian alluvium, just a bit to the west. During this period, they hadn't started farming yet. A 2004 article by Abbas Alizadeh calls them, quote, sedentary hunter-herder-gatherer groups, end quote. That is, they had already adopted Neolithic herding practices, partially because this is one of the places they were invented. But they did grow some domestic crops, including bread wheat, oats, peas, lentils, and flax. They gathered wild plants like goat face grass, rye grass, canary grass, and fescue, as well as vetch, milk vetch, clover, screw beans, and capers. So we see that cereals were not yet the center of their diet. Legumes seem to have been more important. They had domestic herds of sheep and goats, and they hunted wild gazelle, onager, and aurochs, as well as freshwater animals like carp, catfish, clams, and turtles. During this period, each small cluster of villages had its own unique material culture. In Susiana, that cluster included Chogamish, Chogabonat, and another site called Bone Fazili. Another cluster included Ganjdere and nearby sites. So one reason these sites may have been clustered together may have been to keep a constant stream of new marriage partners, especially if your village is only 100 people, because the modern minimum for a stable population is a population of about 500 people. So if you have 100 people per village, ideally you have five villages clustered by each other, obviously so that people can marry outside their family and keep the population going without having to move outside the area to find new marriage partners. Within these clusters, pottery is very similar, which probably means that both the potters and the pottery were circulating widely within these clusters, which is what would happen if they had been sharing marriage partners and craft styles for generations within the cluster, but less so outside of it. So burials during this earliest period indicate that villages are basically egalitarian, not just in Chogamish, but across Susiana. Objects in burials tend to be personal ornaments, not particularly exotic or labor-intensive. Burials beneath houses show continuity of lineage and residence. And compared with later periods, burials are interesting because they contain all ages and sexes. So instead of only burying infants, we see that all members of the community were buried under the floors of family houses. At Chogamish, we see T-shaped figurines, rammed earth walls made of long rectangular mud bricks, we see the floors of hards covered with fire-cracked rocks, which, as we've talked about, were probably used to boil water and heat other liquids. Moving to our next phase, this is Archaic Susiana II in the mid-6000s BCE. Chogamish has grown to two hectares, with a population around 200 people. They kept the same building practices, now with stone foundations. We continue to see T-shaped figurines and a new kind of stylized cylindrical figurine with incised marks. We also see evidence of cultural contact with the Samara and Hasuna cultures in northern Mesopotamia as well as an increasing focus on domestic species. So more wheat, more barley, more goats and sheep. Like I said earlier, the first domestic cattle. 
For the first thousand years of Chogamisha's occupation, goats and sheep make up 80% of all animal bones. Over time, sheep will become more common than goats. Next phase, the archaic Susiana III in the late 6000s. This is when the rooms and porches begin to be paved with stones. Cattle become more important. We see a new type of saddle-shaped stone mill for grinding grain into flour, which is evidence of increasing reliance on cereals. We also see major changes in the material culture. So, like I said, this may be this wave of central Mesopotamian immigrants moving east into Iran. It might also be locals adopting new practices, resulting from more interregional trade. But either way, the archaeological record is too continuous for major demographic displacement. So even if there was a large amount of migration into Iran, they were probably marrying into existing communities rather than replacing them altogether. So some common designs on this pottery include women with flowing hair, scorpions, goats, fish, and water birds, as well as various geometric designs. This pottery is similar to the oldest pottery in southern Mesopotamia from the Ubaid Zero period in the late 6000s, so around the same time. So what we may see during this period is a long-term trend of migration from central Mesopotamia, both east into Iran and south into the Mesopotamian Illuvium. You know, in both cases, they would be able to use new irrigation techniques to make the land in these wetland areas more productive. We might also see Highlanders fleeing the 8.2 Killier event. In a 2020 article, Hojat Drabi wrote, quote, We may hypothesize that such severe climate forced people to move towards lowland areas where Samaran peoples had just settled, end quote. So, of course, this is the period of colder and drier climatic conditions centered around 6200 BCE. This would cause less rain in the mountain valleys, which may have forced people to move down to the plains, which would be easier to irrigate because they wouldn't be reliant on unpredictable rainfall. So along with people moving east from central Mesopotamia, we might have people moving west from the Zagros Mountains. We don't have any evidence of irrigation yet, but like I said, once you figure out irrigation, you can turn floodplains into extremely productive farmland. Darabi continues, quote, We may hypothesize that such severe climate forced people to move towards lowland areas where Samaran peoples had just settled, end quote. So the history of Susiana is the history of Highlanders from Iran interacting with lowlanders in contact with Mesopotamia, not just now, but for all periods of its history. So we know that Iran was in contact with southern Mesopotamia during this period. Objects like a spindle whorl, a mat, and a basket from Tel el Uweli in southern Mesopotamia were made with bitumen from western and southwestern Iran. These objects range from the late 6,000s to the early 5,000s. So to look at art at Trogamish, we see turquoise jewelry and bead loincloths made of shell and stone, which reminds us of a bead skirt found in a grave at Eridu. We also see the first hammered copper. This copper may have been processed at Tepe Siok to the northeast, the copper itself probably came from the Anorak mines in central Iran. So Susiana probably received copper in finished form. In terms of burial, people seem to have buried their dead under the floors of their houses and painted their remains with red ochre. We don't see any evidence of grave goods, but some people had elongated skulls. We talked about head shaping back in episode 5. This may have been a mark of elite status. People lived in multi-room houses with shared open yards in between. This may be tied to the growth of larger extended families. As the population grew larger, this would include more people and fewer families, so there'd be fewer social units altogether in the community, which would be a way to preserve social balance. The late 6000s here is also when we see the first public buildings or non-domestic architecture. So this might be some kind of religious building or an administrative center or a grain silo, maybe all of the above. Either way, it's a sign of increasing social complexity. One of these public buildings has two long hallways. It has no trace of a hearth or storage facilities. We see no burials. The walls were thick enough to support a second story, and the southern wall has four buttresses, which is a form of monumental decoration that it shares in common with Tel El Uweli. Also during the late 6000s, we see similar pottery over a broad area, to the north and northeast in Iran, and to the west and southwest in both central and southern Mesopotamia. So again, the initial peopling of southern Mesopotamia has a lot to do with what's going on in central Mesopotamia and Iran around this time. Next period is the early Susiana period, so the early 5000s. This is when we see increased contact with the Mesopotamian Illuvium, who is currently in their early Ubaid period, 
Both areas have similar pottery and utilitarian objects. In 2004, Abbas Alizadeh wrote, quote, In both technology and decorative style, Susiana was in a lockstep development with southern Mesopotamia, end quote. So each village was surrounded by between 15 and 100 square kilometers of unoccupied space. Even with crude agriculture, these plains could support much denser settlement, especially considering that not all villages were inhabited at the same time. So during this period, the population of Susiana was much lower than it could be. During this period, we see major changes in burial practices. From now on, adults are rarely found buried within sites. We also see more ochre and personal ornaments in these graves. Chogamish specifically grew to 3.5 hectares. They were growing bread wheat, emmer, and six-row barley, and still grinding them on saddle corns. They were raising cattle, sheep, and goats, and maybe spinning wool into thread on star-shaped spindle whorls, but they were still hunting, gathering, and fishing. Cattle were much more important during this period, but sheep and goats still made up 70% of animal remains. Up to now, only one in four sheep and goats under two years old was culled, but starting now, more and more animals are culled while they're young, which again is a more efficient culling practice and may be related to a growing population. We see a new type of stone hoe in Susiana and Dathlaran to the north. They may have used these to break the ground or maybe to cut weeds. Alizadeh describes this tool as having a, quote, crescent-shaped sharp tip with an elongated narrow handle usually smeared with bitumen, end quote. And we see traces of preserved rope wrapped around the grip as a handle. We don't see any certain evidence of chiefdoms yet, but we do see a series of big multi-room buildings. The areas in front of the door are still paved with cobblestones. We see two homes of large extended families, maybe chiefly families, and one building with long parallel chambers, maybe a storehouse. There's also a mud brick platform in an open court that is five by seven meters. It's adjacent to two walls, so it may be the paved floor of a house, or it may be a loading dock for a warehouse. I only bring it up because this is a precursor to the much bigger monumental platform that we'll see built at Susa in episode 16. Next phase is the early Middle Susiana period, so 5400 to 5100 BCE. There's a smooth transition from the previous period, no major upheaval, but they do use a new type of clay bricks. Not much changed regarding food. We see the same mix of domestic and wild animals, the same star-shaped spindle whorls, but fewer stone grinding tools, maybe because they were growing naked grains, which they wouldn't have needed to process so intensively. We see more culling. So now 60% of goats and sheep under 18 months are culled. So they're culling them younger and younger. This may be evidence of increased reliance on meat or maybe more selective breeding practices. We also see population growth. We have lots of new sites. The number grows more quickly in the highlands than it does in the lowland plains. It's likely related to a surplus population breaking off and going elsewhere, which again is a good way to maintain egalitarian relations. So for this period in southwestern Iran, the material culture is more similar to Mesopotamia than it is to the rest of Iran. At first, the dead are still buried under the floors, but this practice is abandoned by the late 5000s. We haven't found any bodies after 5100, but that's not proof that they didn't bury the bodies in the village. We just haven't found them. This is also in contact with the Mesopotamian alluvium peaks. So, starting around 5300 BCE, Ubaid culture begins to permeate north. We'll talk about that in episode 15. We also see a lot of inter-regional trade. Copper now begins to appear in many villages, imported from both central Iran and central Anatolia. We see carnelian from Afghanistan, cowrie shells from the Red Sea, and we see dentalium shells from the Mediterranean, which is also a fair ways away, all of which points to one very big network of interactions linking the entire Near East. Our next and last phase is the late Middle Susiana period, so 5100 to 4700 BCE. We see lots of continuity with the past. The material culture here is similar to Iranian styles to the north and east. This is also the highest number of sites in Susiana. This begins to decline as individual sites get bigger. But from now until the Uruk period, Susiana will appear more Iranian than Mesopotamian. So the cultural focus is shifting from west to east in Susiana. The population is continuing to grow with a much higher density than before. Now we see one village every 13 to 20 square kilometers. 
is starting to make more intensive use of irrigation agriculture. This is also when the population of Chogamish peaks. We see the most extensive occupation in the early 4000s. The town grew to 15 hectares, over 10 times the size of normal villages. At the same time, the area east of Susiana flourishes. Chogamish may have facilitated trade between the east and the west. We also see that cattle are more common. Before now, we didn't have any calves under 10 months killed. Now, lots of them are. And then we see a lot more cattle killed at prime age, around 30 months. In a 2017 paper, Justin Levtov and colleagues wrote, quote, This pattern points to a dual emphasis on meat and milk, where calves were slaughtered so milk could be taken from the cows and other individuals were maintained to prime age for meat. On the other hand, most goats and sheep are killed in the prime of their life, between 18 and 30 months old. This is too old for ideal meat production and too young for animals that you expect to milk and shear wool from for the rest of their lives. So the fact that they're killing these prime age animals may speak to food shortages. It's better to kill your livestock inefficiently than it is to starve to death. Also, for the first time, pigs become an important part of the diet in this region. We see two times as many pigs as during the early Susiana period. Most of them are young and presumably cold for meat. So again, this may be evidence of a greater demand for meat as the population grew. So burial trends across Susiana continue. Almost all burials are infants or fetuses, increasingly found with one or more pots. We see one adult burial at Chogamish in a brick tomb with a plain cup and a jar. And we see the first monumental center in Susiana. This is a big public building on a terrace, at least 10 by 15 meters with walls one and a half meters thick. This is a bigger version of earlier building styles with four parallel hallways and a facade with symmetrical buttresses, which, as we'll talk about, are a common architectural decoration. This building is probably used for agricultural storage. We see a similar building at Choga Bonut around the same time. This was presumably an administrative center. They used the first known stamp seals in Iran. So we see three stamps and two seal impressions, that is, clay stamped with the impression of the seal. The stamp seals themselves were orange, red, or white stones. They could be round or square, but they all had the same quadrant design, which is already popular in Mesopotamia. We also see two seal impressions from a different type of seal. Both of these have the same rosette design that would later become popular in Mesopotamia, maybe associated with the cult of Inanna, as we'll see. It's unclear what these were used to seal. Like in Mesopotamia, which had used seals since the 6000s BCE, seals and tokens were tools used to record the flow of goods. Tokens probably represented a type and amount of goods. Spheres, or balls, were still the most common type of token. New types include cones and half-spheres. Presumably, when transactions took place in this administrative center, tokens would be moved or exchanged to track the movement of these goods. Notably, this public building is destroyed by fire around 4700 BCE. It's not clear exactly how or why it burned down, but this destruction coincided with the end of the settlement at Chogamish. So after the building was burned, Chogamish would be abandoned. It would be a couple hundred years until Susa is founded. We'll talk about that, like I said, in episode 16. But generally, we will see an east-to-west migration and a population growth in West Susiana, where Susa is. So we'll see Susa replace Chogamish as a regional center. People may have relocated because of a war. That is, Chogamish may have been destroyed by rivals who burned it down as an act of war. It may have also burned down as the end of its use life. That is, it may have been burned down by the people who used it intentionally as a kind of ceremonial ending to its use as a public building. It may also be something like the river changing course or trade routes changing or the climate changing or something like that. Chogamish's history is not over. We'll pick up their story again in future episodes. We'll see it interwoven into the early history of Mesopotamian city-states. And before we finish today, I want to take a very quick look at Chogabonat. So we covered Chogabonat in episode 5. It was an early Neolithic site in Susiana, occupied during a similar time as Ali Kosh. So both sites allow us to see the transition from the pre-Pottery Neolithic to the Pottery Neolithic. But unlike Chogamish, Chogabonat would be deserted in the 6000s BCE, around the same time Chogamish was founded, and it would be unoccupied for at least a thousand years. During this period, like I said, southwestern Iran became more entangled in interregional trade with southern Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf. We see lots of cultural interaction between Mesopotamia and Iran. 
Shogabona was reoccupied around 5200 BCE during the late Middle Susiana period. By this time, Chogamish was a major local center, and Chogabona may have been a suburb of Chogamish. We have five houses from this period. These are rectangular, with several rooms with courtyards. These buildings are clustered around a large open space and paved with pebbles. In this open area, we see 16 pottery kilns and some kind of circular platform, probably used for some kind of industrial production. During this period, the population of Bona was around 200 people, so not a big enough population to support industrial production on its own. So maybe Chogabona was a specialized pottery production center connected to Chogamish that is not its own autonomous community, but a settlement focused on certain jobs, you know, producing things for the wider region and not just a village on its own. Either way, Chogabona didn't last long. It was abandoned again around 4800 BCE, around the same time that Chogamish was abandoned. We'll see a later occupation in the late 4000s, but that layer was damaged by the same bulldozer that damaged earlier levels, which I talked about back in episode 5. And that's a wrap on the Neolithic. So, returning to some Sumerian proverbs, we start with more familiar themes. For example, what is in one's mouth is not in one's hand. Gives me, like, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush vibes. No, no, exactly. Let your eye be your eye. Let your knees walk. I feel like it's like, stay in your lane. Or maybe the grass is always greener. Like, you can see that it looks nice, but you're here and, you know, you should walk. Huh, that makes sense. That's what I thought. Like, you can be covetous, but, you know, you shouldn't take action on it. That is a good interpretation. He who says, I will live for today, is bound like a bull on a nose rope. I feel like that's another anti-crastination one. Is it? Right? I mean, you know. I will live for today. If you are not preparing for tomorrow. Like, or I guess, yeah, no, that makes sense. Bound like a bull on a nose rope, like you're being led around and limited in your actions. Yeah, by your base desires. Okay, I see, I see. The married man, having divorced his wife, examined her and said, at least I'm taking away my dignity. (laughs) At least I'm taking away away my dignity. (laughs) Oh, that's just, that's so universal. A lot of these remind you of like, you know, mid-century stand-up comics. Yeah. Wow. Whoa! Is this a Yo Mama joke? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe. His mother is lame and his arms are paralyzed. Wow! What a, what a f***ed up thing to say to someone. Or about someone. (laughs) You're gonna fight me about it? Oh, that's right, you can't. (laughs) God. Yeah, I don't know. Imagine these guys on Reddit. You could totally find someone on Reddit being like, well, I bet your mother's lame and your arms are paralyzed. I mean, yes. God, rude. Also, your role in life is unknown. Which is fair. That's just facts. That's not like, that doesn't even feel like a proverb. That's like a metaphysical dunk. And like some of these were probably not as much proverbs as they were just like sentences for scribes to copy down. Hmm. I get the sense that some of these were either like literally from exercises like scribal exercises, or were just like random sentences from other stories. Oh, so like Bart writing his punishment over and over on the chalkboard is like, the scribes writing your role in life is unknown. Someone got caught assuming that they had foreknowledge of their fate. (laughs) (laughs) So here we have some Sumerian proverbs of unknown origin, which usually means they were looted. Ooh, and Leo, when I am aroused, my loincloth is gone. Sometimes it'd be like that. Ow! Let the favor be repaid to him who repays a favor. Me trying to get people to cover my shifts. <laughs> reminding people that I covered theirs. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's the retroactive golden rule. Please do unto me as I have already done unto you. Speaking of which, who has the breath for that, as they say? <laughs> I'm glad people were saying as they say back then. That was a proverb, by the way. As they say. In the city of the lame, those who limp are couriers. Of what? No, it's like, you know, in the in the city of the blind man, the one-eyed man is king. Oh, like people who can limp 
in the city of the lame who where assumedly most people cannot even limp. Right. I have many things to think and say about disability, but Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> we have some mentions of the river ordeal, similar concept to what we see in early modern European witch trials. God of the river ordeal will admire the hearts of those who bear words of truth. What uh what's the river ordeal? Essentially, the concept of a truth-revealing procedure, where if someone's telling the truth, then they will survive the river ordeal, and if they aren't, then they'll drown. Probably it would not be wise for them to kill everyone who needs a statement verified. Uh, oh, I so. see, I see. Because, you know, this is, you know, civil procedure, just run through temples and or the palace or whatever. Really? At least from the time periods that we have the most records, like if your local village authorities or whatever can't resolve your issue, then you take it to the king mm-hmm. and, you know, argue your case about land dispute or whatever. Right. And then the river ordeal comes in. No, no, you say, it's like, hey, my neighbor moved my boundary stone. He says, no, I didn't. And then you both go down to the river and, uh, you know, whatever procedure they use, that's supposed to see who's lying. Okay. Are you familiar with the stories of, like, Akbar and Birbal? I mean, I know I know of them. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like a lot of the Akbar and Birbal stories are like, someone comes to the court of Akbar and is like, I, you know, got cheated by my business partner or whatever. And, like, Birbal will use his, like, excellent investigative smarts to figure it out. So it's like... You know, if that wasn't possible or if Birbal was, like, not there, it would be like, okay, we'll take it to the priests and the priests will go and, you know, use their whatever we ascribe to to figure out who's telling the truth. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's it's easy to look back at, you know, pre-modern peoples and be just like, ah, how could they possibly decide things with real uh, you know, legal importance, sometimes a matter of life and death, with things that are ultimately arbitrary? Like, hmm. Uh, whoa. Yep. Boy, I do think laws and the legal structure are immutable and morally correct. Woo! <laughs> the other ordeal proverb is, a millstone will float in the river for a righteous man. Does sound like some floating or sinking was involved. We also have some proverbs touching on political leadership. For example, whatever the man in authority said, it was not pleasant. So true, bestie. (laughs) Where's that blessing of Arata now? Yeah, no, total agreement. Nothing to say. Getting ruled sucks. A palace will fall of its own accord. Does that mean like a palace will fall because of like the things that happen within the palace or like a palace will fall whenever it falls? My interpretation is that it's going to fall because of the actions of the king. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. If a leader is being consumed by fire, those behind him don't say, where is the leader? God, we live in such an unthinkable hellscape. (laughs) Should we continue to my favorite subject? Complaining? Yes. I always seem to be speaking about unpleasant things. Oh my God, girl. (laughs) Which is me. Same. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) See, we have another great one. Whatever it is that hurts you, don't talk to anyone about it. Kelton's response was, okay, football dad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You take that pain and you put it in your stomach and you hold it there forever. (laughs) It's okay, ancient Sumerian guy. You can talk about it. Write it down. I'll listen to you. I have found it. A cause for celebration. I have lost it. My heart does not ache. Uh, you don't speak of that which you have found. You talk only about what you have lost. Yeah, shut the f*** up if you lost something. (laughs) Let me tell you about my fate. It is an insult. Let me explain it to you. It is a disgrace. That is fun. Yeah, Um. no, hard same. Oh, God. (laughs) Let me explain it further. It's a f***ing disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any questions? When I first read this, actually, I thought it was like, you know, if someone is telling you about their life, then it's kind of an insult to you. But like, if they're explaining to you why their life sucks, it's like, dude, 
you're pathetic. I mean, that may be the original meaning. We also have some proverbs about curses. Oh, sweet. Curses. So is this, is this, so curses, what I'm talking about, is this like things that you would say to someone to be like, you should have this fate? I, I guess the, the section I compiled is more like proverbs about curses and insults in general. Because I guess curse does have a specific meaning where like they believe they were really calling down dark magic or whatever. Punishment to the gods. Yeah. So yeah, these are more proverbs about curses than they are. The literal text of the curse tablets. I see. For example. A heart never created hatred. Speech created hatred. So my like Facebook algorithm or whatever like thinks I'm like a libertarian who doesn't believe in monkeypox. That's very fun. Yeah, it gives you a window into how fucking boned we are. But um, yeah, this is totally like, I feel like you would see this on like a wokeism is killing America like Facebook meme page. <laughs> No, there was one that was like a political cartoon or something that was like, well, of course, a political cartoon where these two kids are like, I thought we were learning division today. And like on the board, the teacher was writing critical race theory. Yeah, um, a heart never created division. CRT created division. But also like, I mean, I feel like you could read this as like a heart never created hatred, speech created hatred as like, if you hate someone and you like don't fucking talk about it, it's not a problem. No. What you are doing is a small accomplishment. That man is not doing a man's work. Oof. And relatedly. In my heart, you are a human being, but in my eyes, you are not a man. Gender making in uh, late 2000s BC Sumeria. Just like imagine being a dude who is like, I have lost it. My heart does not ache. And then someone telling you, in my heart, you are a human being, but in my eyes, you are not a man. (laughs) Now my heart aches. When he walks on the streets, no one greets him. And when he comes home to his wife, bad name is what he is called. It's probably an asshole. <laughs> yeah. So this dude is probably cursed. No, exactly. Okay. To accept a verdict is possible. To accept a curse is impossible. Thinking about the state. Ooh. Yeah, that's true and corrected good. But a curse. <laughs> yep. It is an insult resulting from an insult. It is a curse resulting from a curse. It is the constant renewal of destiny. Damn, you really you really save like the hardest hitting ones for last, huh? Yeah. Insults and curse. It's our destiny. It's like prophetic. You know, bitches will be insulting and cursing until the end of time. <laughs> True. We have some problems about money, for example. Oh boy. Wealth is far away and poverty is close at hand. Man, like, there's a lot of, you know, good feelings associated with being like, hey, I have that in common with, like, some rando from, like, Mesopotamia in, like, 2000 BC. And there's some things that are like, I want to jump off a bridge because my life has so much in common with a rando in Mesopotamia in 2000 BC. (laughs) Possessions are flying birds. They never find a place to settle. You know when you put something down, can't remember where you put it down? Me too. Some dude tapping on his tablet, perfecting his stand-up routine, Sumerian comedy club. Uh, what is eaten for today was put there by the dog. And what is eaten by the dog was put there for today. Dog ate my homework. <laughs> what? I don't know. I mean, I assume the first half is just like, you know, I left up my lunch for today and then the dog ate it. No, there's another one about a mongoose that eats all the guy's food when he's not paying attention. It's like, oh, you know, complaining that his pet ate all his food. <laughs> I thought it was like, it's like, well, the dog helps you be able to put food on the table, but you give the dog your scraps from what is on the table. I don't know if the dog necessarily helped anyone with like directly productive labor. Because like most of the dogs that show up in Sumerian Proverbs are just like annoying assholes. 
Oh. That are, you know, digging stuff up and knocking stuff over and stuff like that. I mean, did Sumerians have, like, domesticated dogs or, like, dogs that, like, hung out? They did have dogs that hung out, like, in residential areas. It's not totally clear if they were, like, household pets or just kind of, like, strays or feral animals that were sometimes friendly. Mm -hmm. But we do have, like, clay tablets with a dog print in them. Wait, like a paw print? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, you're telling me there's there's clay tablets with dog paw prints in them? Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I assume that, like, there's got to be some kind of, like, symbiotic relationship, like dogs, like, chasing away pests or, like, guarding, like... I don't know, a household or like grain storage. Like there there has to be some utility. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I would assume mostly guarding and barking when intruders come or whatever. Were cats around? Did they have cats? They did have cats. Nice. When a purchase is settled, it is soon out of mind. I really feel that. I feel like you like worry about money <laughs> a lot before it's spent. And after it's spent, you're just like, well, that's gone now. Yep. And it's done. That's relatable. <laughs> Next up is give out only half a loaf voluntarily. Yeah, and that's one thing. Like, looking at the first collection of sayings, which was written down around 2500 BC, called the Instructions of Shurupak, like, a lot of those are obviously geared towards this kind of, like, you know, urban elites who don't necessarily have any kind of, like, family obligation to help the poor people that are constantly begging them for food. Hmm. So a lot of them are just like, be stingy. Just like, don't trust strangers too much. I don't know, like, my, like, rich friends will always be like, oh, so you're going to pay me back for that, like, sip you took of, like, my boba or whatever, right? Whereas, like, you know, you're hanging out with your friends who, like, grew up poor and they're just like, have you eaten? I will give you some of my food. Like, I will give you more of what I have if it means that you will also be, like, satisfied. Um, yep. The, like, sense of, like, community that comes with, like, resource deprivation compared to, like, when you have all the bread in the world, you're like, I want to keep my advantage. <laughs> I don't know, it's just interesting. Because, like, obviously, in most periods of history, we only have the writings of, like, the richest people. Right. Privileged, whatever. It's just interesting because, like, even in an obviously, you know, selfish culture like America, if you ask people what is the correct thing to do, like, not, not what is the most expedient or what is the most, like, profitable, but, like, what's the right thing to do morally? Probably most people would say, well... <laughs> I feel like the answer would be stratified by class. That's also true. No, yeah, I was going to say, like, surely no one would try to rationalize away not giving money to a homeless person. But no, people do. Mm. Yeah, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've sure made a fool of myself, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, fair point. Though I still have bread left over, I will eat your bread. Will this endear a man to the household of his friend? Some of these touch on class, for example. To be wealthy and insist on demanding more is abominable. All right, proverbs I can get on board with. <laughs> oh, let's go. This next one. It is on account of being the boss that you bully me. Karl Marx was like looking at this tablet like, ooh. <laughs> what has submitted will exhibit resistance. I'm loving these proverbs. <laughs> right. I'm very into these class struggle proverbs. What is submitted? Can you get me that in like the original so I can put it on, on like a banner or something? <laughs> it's true though. If you give something up, you, you know that it's possible to have it back again. That's why we got to keep people down. <laughs> so they never know what they're missing. Ooh, good counterpoint. Not all the households of the poor will bow down together. True. Is bow down like... Will they submit or, like, will they resist? No, it's like, yeah. Some of them will submit, but not all of them. Yeah. After all, what has submitted will exhibit resistance. The city's fate cannot be determined. Its bookkeeper is a merchant. It's like another guy doing the books for the city is a professional book cooker. Oh. When the merchant class is at the helm of the city's power, it's, you know, fate is uh, in question. 
The thing is that the word here translated as merchant, Domgar, is the Sumerian word for it. It was probably more of a acquisitions official for a major institution. So it's not someone who necessarily buys something to sell later for a profit. It's more of a person in charge of procuring something from elsewhere to bring back to their employer. Okay. Like a, like a broker. Yeah. You, merchant, how small you made the amount of silver, and how small you made the amount of oil and barley. Yeah, Nasir's influence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Shout out to that guy. True. So the procurer has not brought back a lot of good stuff, or he's trying to sell, like, smaller quantities? Yeah, I think he's trying to screw the producers and also screw the people he's supplying to. Nice. Skimming off the top. Well, when your bookkeeper is a merchant, you you know how it is. Weighing scales made with a net are a trap made for the feet. A man should not take a merchant for his friend. What does that mean? (laughs) I I mean, I feel like the second half is more self-explanatory. Yeah. Weighing scales made with a net. In the Lagash episodes, the idea of a battle net has a symbolic significance in the war between Lagash and Uma. Okay. That may or may not be what they're referencing here. But I feel like, you know, the, the overall meaning is just like, scales will trap you because merchants are tricky. Okay. Because, you know, they would be using scales on a daily basis as like the main tool of exchanging different things. Mm-hmm. So, it, I, I don't know, it's kind of reading to me like, you know, the merchant is probably rigging his scales... You know, generally you shouldn't be trustworthy of merchants. No. Yeah. Oof. The lives of the poor do not survive their deaths. Aw, that's really fucking sad. Well, there's your, you know, the fuel of the fire has an important part to play, but it leaves no trace when it's gone. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. Well, history written by the rich people, right? Yep. Well, I mean, to get more serious, I mean, that's what you want to do with this podcast, right? Is shine a light on regular ass Mesopotamians way back when. Yeah, yeah. Which is why it's interesting, you know, when we get to the late Uruk period, that we have the names of hundreds of slaves, but zero actual officials. Hmm. Because the officials all signed their names with their fancy engraved cylinder seals, which <gasps> were just like artwork, but they wrote the names of the slaves down in records. Ooh. Whoa. Unfortunately, we can't read them because we're not sure exactly how they map onto actual language phonetically and stuff like that. But we do have their names written down. Wow. All right. Beer is a bull. The mouth is its stairway. Wait, what? I feel like that one would be self-explanatory if bulls habitually went up and down stairs. I thought it was like a, a common like myth or whatever that like, you know, cows and I assume bulls can like go upstairs, but they can't walk downstairs. Ooh, you know what? That would make sense. Did you ever hear that myth about No. That like what? There's this like urban legend that like, you know, where it's like a bunch of like students, I guess it's a prank, like led a cow up the stairs to like the rooftop of like a dorm, but they couldn't get it back down. And so the cow had to be killed up there. Holy shit. It's like a, it's like an urban legend at like the dorms. That's fun. I, I I don't think I heard that one, but I mean, that does sound like the quintessential urban legend. <laughs> but yeah, beer is a bowl, the mouth is its stairway. You can get more drunk, but you can't get less drunk. That's true. Well, maybe vomiting is like going the other direction. That's that's the proverbial killing of the bowl. Oh, you. <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah, Sheila's explanation was, you know, the bowl can go up the stairs, but it can't go back down again. Oh, that's clever. I guess unless it falls down and vomit everywhere. Yeah, that's, we had the exact same exchange. The beloved true commander distributes leadership. Delegate, delegate, delegate. When the authorities are wise and the poor are loyal, it is the effect of the blessing of Arata. 
The only thing I was going to say about this one, besides the obvious, uh, you know, written by a rich guy, is that Arata is the mythical legendary city that shows up in the Unmerkar and Lugalbanda bits that we'll look at at the end of season two. Hmm. So it's like Atlantis? Basically, like in the myth, it's like, you know, you go past Susa and Anshan and like these Iranian cities that are near-ish Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. And you go over seven mountains and then you get to Arata. So it's not so much like a mythical lost land as it is just kind of like a proverbial faraway Iranian city. So it it is like it exists. Well, as far as I know, it doesn't show up in the actual like political records. Okay. The way that real cities do. But it's very prominent in literature. Like a Mount Kailash or a Mount Olympus kind of. Yeah, 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 more like that. Except only people live there. Okay, but it's a mythical place where things are good? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, things aren't bad there. I To be honest, I don't know exactly what this, you know, Authorities Are Wise and the Poor Lord has to do with the Arata that appears in the epic poems. Interesting. I've seen it interpreted as Arata was a city near where the Sumerians originally came from. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm. Let great men stir up the conflict for lesser men to fight out. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Boy, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. Uh, speaking of which, do not be hostile to the weakling. Do not cry for the strong one. Yeah, don't tell someone his mother's lame and his arms are paralyzed. <laughs> A clown made fun of the city. They made fun of him and he wept. They literally predicted Pagliacci. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I'm going to end today with a diatribe. We remember a diatribe for episode five, basically a literary genre of poetic insults. Engar Dug, croaker among singers, a man without good judgment, braggart, open the house, I have a quarrel with you. A monkey in appearance, a rogue, a witness without shame, not accepting a verdict, a slippery place which respected men avoid, despising the leader of the workforce, a pig spattered with mud, loving crosstalk and deceit, having got stuck into a quarrel, he came out mouthing insults, a warrior on duty but holding back. Engardug blocked at the anus, whose speech is like vomit, beast with its tail stuck in its mouth, choosing words carefully, weak, bragging, and constantly shifty in his advice and counsel, with a disgraced reputation among the singers, a dog not producing sound from the lyre, but emitting a battle cry. Engardug, your holy song is finished. Your insults will no longer sully the city squares. Your lies are made obvious. <laughs> <laughs>